Good morning, beloved. I'm Pastor Jonathan, one of the pastors here at Anderson Hills. I want to welcome everyone who's joining us online. Um, this weekend, there are uh, 20 women who are going on to walk to Emmaus, and there's three of them here from uh, Anderson Hills. And uh, I don't know if you've been on that retreat. Maybe just a show of hands if you've been on that retreat to walk to Emmaus. I know I have. That's where I gave my life to Christ on a chrysalis. And um, in February, uh, the 20th through the 23rd, 2020 there, uh, there's a men's uh, walk to Emmaus. I know several of the guys and I are on that team. And if you're interested in that, just please let me know. And it's a powerful experience that uh, you can go on this retreat. So anyway, we bless those women, and, and I know they're going to be bathed in God's grace. So last week we saw uh, David be raised up from shepherd to a king. He had a humble beginning. Really, his brothers and dad didn't think he was the one, but Samuel anointed him. God chose him. He trusted in his power, and we heard about his courage and strength, and he defeated, he slayed Goliath. And his popularity escalated, and eventually he replaces his flawed predecessor, Saul, and he restores Israel, conquers Jerusalem, brings the ark back to Jerusalem, that holy city. David became known as not only one of Israel's greatest king, but more importantly, a man after God's own heart. And so in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, we read that God makes his promise to David that God will establish his house in his line, his descendants will sit on the throne forever. And the gospel writers, they read this as a prophecy for the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. And in Luke chapter 1, the angel says to Mary, and we're about to hear this coming up to Christmas, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he'll reign over Jacob's descendants forever in his kingdom will never end. And we discover that David, he really turns everything to gold that he touches and defeats his enemy time and time again and he expands his kingdom and the world is at peace for a time. And David begins to be at rest in his palace. But today we're going to examine some of the trials of this great king. David begins to let his guard down and through some tragic Choices that causes irreversible damage to his life, his family's life, and his kingdom. And so today we see the trials of a king. There's a story of a little boy who lived in the country, and he and his family had to use an outhouse for a restroom. And this little boy absolutely hated this outhouse. And so he decided one day, because he was tired of going to the restroom in his outhouse in the summer and in the cold of winter and it got stinky and everything, he decided, because this house was on a bank near the river, that after the spring rain, he was going to push that outhouse into that river. So one day he got that April spring rain. He took a big stick and he rushed up to it and he plunged that thing into the river. Later that night, his dad told him that he was going to be punished. And he asked his father, Dad, why am I going to be punished? He said, because someone pushed the outhouse into the creek today. And I think it was you, wasn't it, son? 
The boy paused, and he answered, yes, Dad, it was me. And then the, the little boy pondered a little bit, and then he said, Dad, you know, I read in school today that when George Washington cut down a cherry tree, he didn't get into trouble because he told the truth, and Dad, I told the truth. And his father responded, well, yes, son, but George Washington's father wasn't in that cherry tree. <laughs> now, I would say in here that you have never toppled an outhouse into a creek with your dad inside of it, but we can identify with this little boy in a few ways. First, we have something in us that wants to do wrong and make selfish, selfish choices. Second, our choices can affect other people's lives. And third, there's always consequences to those choices. And we see things, this thing at work, in the subject of this week's the story. And we come to chapter 11 in 2 Samuel. It was the springtime in Jerusalem. The seasons of birds and bees, the afternoon strolls were happening with David, and he was on top of the rooftop of his palace. And it says in the scriptures that it was the time when kings are to go out to battle. But the text says that David does not go. He stays at home, relaxing. You know, I, <laughs> I thought about this. Many times trouble comes, I think, when we are supposed to be somewhere and we're not where we are supposed to be. We're in the wrong place and usually trouble happens when that occurs. I remember... When I was 16 years old, and I, know, I didn't know my mom and dad knew everything at that time, but if they thought I was spending the night at my best friend's house, but instead I was attending the Bon Jovi concert without their uh, knowledge. It was a secret I tried to hide, and it lasted about eight hours. And I had to come, in to, <laughs> come to them in confession, but it led to trouble. And so David was supposed to be at another place, he was supposed to be with his men in battle. But he's strolling that palace rooftop out to get some fresh air. And in the evening, in the afternoon, as the sun was setting, he's viewing out and he gets a very startling view. He sees the sight of a gorgeous woman who is bathing. And the writer of Samuel, 2 Samuel, says that she was very beautiful. And David is infatuated. He finds out that her name is Bathsheba. And that she is married to one of his officers, Uriah, who, ironically, is with the men fighting battles. So David abuses his power and utilizes that, sends one of his messengers to her place. And David sleeps with her and then sends her back home. About a month later, she sends word that she is pregnant. And David is in a pickle. We see too often with people who have been given power, abuse that power. And David tries to cover that up. He has his general Joab send for Bathsheba's husband Uriah, have him come back to Jerusalem to update David on the battles. And so he does that, Uriah. And David says, you know what? Wash your feet. Here's a gift. Go home. Be with your wife. And David's sure that Uriah will sleep with Bathsheba, and then he would be responsible for that pregnancy. But he underestimates the loyalty of Uriah. 
he's loyal to his king. He's not going to sleep with his beautiful wife in the comfort of his bed while his troops are out in the field. Instead, he sleeps at the entrance of the palace. And so David tries again. The next night, David invites Uriah to his house for dinner. He gets him drunk. And now David is thinking he'll go home. But Uriah doesn't. He's still loyal to his king. He sleeps on the mat again outside. So David does this, and we see his choice. He sends a note to Joab that says this. Put Uriah in the most dangerous part of the fighting where he will most certainly get killed. And Joab carries out that order, and Uriah is killed. Bathsheba is devastated, and after her mourning passes, David sends for her, and he marries her. We see firsthand how one premeditated choice leads to multiple cover-ups and lies and murder. And we witness the effects as we read the scripture on what it has on others. You see, David thinks he's gotten away with it. And can you imagine how that he's carrying these thoughts of what he's done? And it's got to, to worm into his inward parts. You see, in the Psalms, we can read incredible things that this man, who is a man after God's own heart, wrote these songs. For example, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. These beautiful words, and we see them throughout the scripture. But something happened to this man who loved God. What happened to David is pretty universal. The Bible affirms from Genesis to Revelation that we all are sinners, and we're prone to these type of decisions. And there's something inside of us that wants to do wrong. And things and people can capture our attention and take our focus off of God and God's rhythms and ways. And it can destroy our relationship with one another and with the Almighty. Chapter 11 ends with this verse, the thing David has done displeased the Lord, and we see that. God does not allow this to pass without correction. God wants David to turn around and return as that man who is after his own heart. So God intervenes and sends a prophet Nathan to David with a message. I think when Nathan heard this, he was probably terrified. He has to call out his king. But Nathan does this with wisdom, genius. Watch this. He tells the story of a rich man with large flocks of sheep who needs a lamb for a dinner he is giving. But instead of taking that lamb from his flock, he takes the pet lamb of a poor man living right up the street. Nathan tells David that he butchers the lamb and serves it for dinner, and David is outraged at the cruelty and callousness of this rich man. How can anyone do such a terrible thing? And David passes a death sentence. The man who did this must die. And Nathan says this to David, you, you are that man. I don't know about you, but I've listened to sermons and a lot of sermons, preached a lot of sermons, and I know I thought, and I confess, this is a good message for my brother. Or I hope my wife is listening, or my friend is listening, and then all of a sudden I realize 
But the message is not for them, it's for me. I don't know if that, has that ever happened to you? That's what Nathan does. He brilliantly peels, peels away David's self-righteous religiosity. Look at this. This is what the Lord says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you I gave your master's house to your master's wives into your arms. I gave you Israel and Judea. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his sight? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with sword of the Ammonites. And now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And this is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your, before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is so close to you, who will sleep with your wives in the broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And David realizes that he is a sinner. He has broken God's ways and commandments. He's a person that needs help. He's in desperate need of God's grace. And folks, here's the huge thing. David still has wisdom to say to Nathan, his prophet, I've sinned against the Lord. He could have struck down Nathan, but in his wisdom, in his heart, deep down, he knows God. I have sinned against the Lord. This is the beginning of David's restoration. And can you imagine the load? Like I said, David was carrying for days and days and the thoughts and what that did to him cognitively. He, he knew he needed freedom and he was trying to cover up and lie would cover up each lie. And it got out of hand and immediately Nathan corrects and says this, words of absolution. Immediately the Lord has taken away your sin. Freedom comes, my friends, when we admit that we have fallen short of the glory of God and we have sinned. Eugene Peterson says this, Only when I recognize and confess my sin, I am in a position to recognize and respond to the God who saves me from my sin. And here we have Psalm 51. One of the most beautiful things ever written about confession, and it's written from the heart of this man who is coming back to God. Hear the words of a man who is weary of secrets, weary of cover-ups. Hear the words of a king who lost his way and he wants to return to God and his heart is crying out for forgiveness and cleansing. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your never-failing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. I know my sin is always before me. And against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge. You can hear this. David's sin was always before him. Probably moment by moment he had this. And he was carrying these chains every day. David begins this prayer by accepting responsibility and admitting it. Normally, we try to bury our sin, pretending that it wasn't a big deal, or we rationalize and say, you know what, some others have done it, or we blame others or something else for the responsibility of that, and that's as old as Adam and Eve. 
You know, Adam said, the woman you gave me gave me the, the forbidden fruit. And sometimes we, we also try to deal with our past by beating ourselves up. And we administer that self-punishment. We make ourselves feel lousy. And our self-talk continually condemns and berates ourselves in the way of making atonement for what we have done. And you hear none of that in David. You don't hear him say, I'm a terrible person. No. David tried to keep that secret, but it was killing him. And God was trying to show him that nothing would satisfy until that secret was dealt with and brought out of darkness into the light of God's truth. And God would not let that rest. And I believe the fire of his guilt was rotting him from the inside out. Keeping secret, things will stunt life. And I know that. Not as a theologian and pastor, I know that as a human being, man. It will poison relationships. It'll poison the most relationships in our lives, and that is intimacy with God. And once David did that, the power of that past, the power of that secret, diminished and was obliterated. And once we accept responsibility and admit it to God, our past loses its power over us. And so the second thing we need to do is accept God's forgiveness. And we read it here in that same psalm that King David wrote. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful at the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. And David he affirms that, yet he accepts God's forgiveness to wash that stain of sin away. Sometimes we, we do the first step and never get to the second step. Hence, we don't feel forgiven. And it is God's promise, and we sang that, that he's a, he's a promise keeper. His promise is to forgive us of our sin and not hold that against us. Romans 8.1 said, there is no condemnation for those who live in Christ Jesus. And the Apostle Paul is offering us a promise of guilt-free, condemnation-free living. And the opposite of condemnation, it's justification, being made right once again. To be justified is to be set free from the guilt and enslaving power of sin and receive it by faith. And it is only something God can do. And it's been made. It's been made possible, possible by Christ's death on the cross. An easy way to remember it, its meaning is to think of justification is as just if I've never sinned. God cleanses the slate so that we can start over again. And that's the promise we have of joyful obedience when God says, go and sin no more, but love me in that obedience and be freed for joyful living. That's why Paul can write 2 Corinthians, the old has passed away and the new has come. And the moment you ask God to forgive you, he does. There's no delay. There's no waiting. There's no hesitation with his powerful grace. And he does it once and for all. And I believe David knew that. David knew that as one who was a man after God's own heart. I know when people have asked me to forgive them for harm, there's always that temptation to say, 
I want to give them some time. I want them to suffer a little bit. I want them to grovel. I want to I want them to beg and to plead for forgiveness. I want them to earn their way back into my good graces. And then maybe I'll consider accepting that apology. And that's just evidence of the fact that that is the way sometimes we think. But it's not God's thoughts and God's way. Do you think God thinks like that? No. No way. When you say, God, I admit it, I blew it, would you forgive me? He says, of course. Immediately. God is more eager to forgive, in, forgive you than you are to ask. That's the power of grace in the cross. For David, there is no delay, no earning his way back into God's graces, because you can't. God does this all out of his pure, spotless, amazing grace and love. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. And God says you're never going to see those sins again. They are gone forever as, as far as the east is from the west. East is from the west. So I have separated you from your sin. And so the next thing that David begins to do is he begins to focus on the future. In verse 10, David says what he'll do next. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you and deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, for you are a God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing your righteousness. And my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. Don't be bringing up past mistakes with yourself. Forget the past. I know it's difficult. We have to allow that to be absorbed into the cross. We can't focus on that and let us ruminate in that. We can't cling to it. We have to hate that because it is evil. And we have to cling to that because it is good. We can't stifle the past can stifle the growth that God wants for us and the potential he has for us. And the future focus on God and his plan of restoration is the will of God for our lives. I love the modern translation of Isaiah 43, 18 through 19. It says, the Lord says, do not cling to what the events of the past or dwell on what happened long ago. Watch for a new thing I am going to do. And he says that to us in community and he says that to you. What a new thing God wants to do in you through that healing and restoration. God wants us to look ahead and not look back. It's never too late to start over. Failure is never final unless you want it to be. And God can help us refocus our lives onto something better. And in verse 17, we get a hint of that something significant has shifted in David's thinking. Look at this. He knew, but he had forgotten he says, you do not delight in a sacrifice that I would bring. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You will not, God, you won't despise. What got David in trouble in the first place was that pride, a hubris that made him think he could control and manipulate and exploit and deceive other people at a whim. 
And David remembers that God isn't interested in his religious rituals as he is in our attitude and our, our brokenness and our contrite heart, our humility. It takes humility to admit that we are wrong. It's, I always, throughout my life, Mom, I didn't do it. I, Joe, I didn't do it. It's, it's tough. But then when you say, you know what, and we come up quickly and we say, you know what, I screwed up. It takes humility to do that. A lot of times it takes brokenness, too. David does that. He accepts God's forgiveness and begins to move forward into a new future. But there are consequences that David will live with for the rest of his life. Pain, suffering, and death follow, and we read that in the scriptures. And it would all come from his family. David's daughter, Tamar, is raped by her half-brother, Amon. Ammon is murdered by Tamar's brother, Absalom. Absalom leads a coup against David's father and sleeps with his father's concubines. The rebellion is finally put down and Absalom is, is executed. In the last days on earth, David had to deal with a fight over which a son would succeed him on the throne. And you see how it spun out and those were the consequences. We may not be able to change what we have done already, but... We, and we may not be able to fully escape the consequences from our past choices, but we can change the trajectory of the now by turning back to God. Can I say that again? We may not be able to change what we've already done. We may not be able to fully escape the consequences of those past choices, but we can change the trajectory of the now by coming back to God. Dad. Over 20 years ago, I was, a, I was a student pastor, and a group of men from a, a few churches got together, and we went to a Promise Keeper rally here in Cincinnati, back in the old Riverfront Stadium, and uh, they asked me to begin to help them get a group of guys together for a small group after that Promise Keeper event, and so these five men began to to meet weekly for months, and they, they began growing in their faith, and I would check in on them, how you guys doing, and, and they were doing wonderful, and they were growing in Christ together and following up from those promises. After a few months, though, one member began to not show up at that small group. He finally admitted, after many excuses of his absences, he finally admitted to the group leader that he had left his wife, and moved in with a female co-worker. The men in the group were devastated, and they prayed for him every time they got together and daily, and they loved him. Finally, they discerned together. They agreed to go where he was living, and with a lot of love, they went there to confront him. They told me that when he answered the door, and he saw all the men on the front porch from his small group, and they didn't say a word. He broke down, and he wept. He knew immediately why they were there. To make a long story short, through a lot of, of pain and anguish, counseling, forgiveness, grace, he was able to leave that mistress and return to his marriage and heal from the support of those resources, and especially his brothers in Christ. 
Honestly, over the years, I haven't seen that occur a lot. But I tell you what, it's a powerful testimony that God can do that. And God can do it in us individually as well. It's God's will for us to live in freedom. When we're shackled in a known sin, it can be oppressive for us. And it can be dreadful for others. And we need a God and others around us to help us heal. Repentance sounds like a, one of those old school negative, negative religious words. Ash Wednesday, I would make a sign of a cross and ashes and repent and believe the gospel. Well, I tell you what, it's a great word. It is. It's a word of hope. It means we don't have to stay where we're at. We can turn around and we can walk into the direction of God. And we can't be held captive to those failures of our past. And then we can start over and live in a world with God and God's guidance and power and healing and grace and get rid of the garbage of life and be clean. Some of us here today may feel like that we're paralyzed by a painful past and we need healed and forgiven. If that's you, I want you to know that you can begin afresh because that's the character of God. Those are the promises of God. Will you join me in prayer? God, when you say the old has passed away and the new has come, it means so much to us individually. And it comes out of your great love for us, your sacrificial love of showing us that grace or dying for our sins and past. Wash us clean. Create in us clean hearts. And may we together in community continue to encourage one another to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Give us your wisdom as we make these choices and walk day by day with you depending on your Holy Spirit and your guidance. We thank you and may we be people after your own heart. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.